You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Over my lifetime, I've received many great invitations. Not so much that the invitations themselves were so memorable in the wording or the cardstock or the beauty of them, but more because of the event to which I was invited. Certain weddings that I knew were going to be wonderful celebrations of a great couple, and they would be meaningful and rich. Parties that I would have been invited to. Vacations alongside friends. Why don't you come with us to our place? It's one of the reasons that I love this story that Jesus tells, this parable, parable that Jesus tells about the kingdom, because it contains a great invitation. We find it at the end of verse 17. Come, for everything is now ready. Jesus tells this story to give us insight into the kingdom of God and to spark our imagination about what the kingdom of God will be like. And this invitation in the story is an invitation or a call to participate in the life of the kingdom of God. I don't remember the first time God extended this invitation to me, but I can piece together some memories to say with confidence that this invitation was first extended to me through my parents and their faithfulness to the Lord. As I said in the video, to kind of talk a little bit about our biographical information, I have a fuzzy memory of kneeling in some red shag carpet in our living room in Regina Beach. I think I was in my PJs at the time to respond, to receive Jesus' invitation to follow him and receive salvation. This invitation has been a repeated invitation throughout my life. There's been several turning points in my life where I've sensed Jesus' invitation to to follow, to take a turn, to go off the path that I thought I was on and follow him into areas that were a little unknown at the time. Also, I can remember as a child and probably a preteen, responding to this invitation out of fear. I wanted to be certain that I wasn't going to go to hell. And so I repeated this prayer several times to receive Jesus' invitation. If you fast forward about 15 years, Jesus' invitation to me was to follow him into vocational ministry. I remember I was on a six-week mission trip, short-term mission trip to Ecuador. We were in a camp in the mountains running a retreat for some missionary kids. I was doing my personal devotions under a streetlight at the entrance of the camp, and I had to hurry because the generator shut off promptly at 10, and we would be plunged into deep darkness. And I remember sitting there and having this strong sense of the Spirit inviting me into full-time vocational ministry. About three or four years later, that that invitation, that calling was given greater clarity. I was an intern at Southern Alberta Bible Camp at the time, volunteering at the Picture Butte Evangelical Free Church, when the youth pastor, Steve Dirksen, asked me a question, why have you never considered being a youth pastor? And I didn't have a good answer for him, hadn't crossed my mind. And the Spirit used that question to invite me into church ministry, specifically youth ministry. And so I went back to Pastor Steve and I said, you know, I think maybe that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. And he said, good, because I'm resigning to go to school and I want you to apply for my job. (laughs) So that invitation was kind of a trick, actually. 
About 10 years later, the Spirit used another mentor to, ex- to, extend the spirit, to, to extend his invitation to increase leadership in my life. I was a youth pastor here at the Ephraim Church of Lethbridge when Sid Coop, many of you will know him, he was my direct supervisor at the time, came to me and said that I needed to consider using my gifts not just in youth ministry but beyond for the greater good of the church. And along with Sid and the board who encouraged me, I suspect under Pastor Ian's influence, uh, to give me an education leave to go get my Master of Divinity, I just felt God's invitation to a greater call of ministry. It's been about 10 years since then. And this invitation this time is extended through several friends who encouraged me to consider applying for the position of lead pastor here at the Ephraim Church. And I have to say that there was some hesitation that came along with this invitation because I had been through the process once before and I'd come away somewhat significantly wounded, not just me, but my family as well. And so we formed a group of people to pray with us and for us as we considered whether this was God's invitation in our lives. And Christine and I, along with my children, set aside a day to really listen to God's voice and try to discern what his invitation and call were. And we structured that day around this verse in Psalm 139, verse 23. I'm going to read it from the Common English Bible. It says this, Examine me, God. Look at my heart. Put me to the test. Know my anxious thoughts. Look to see if there is any idolatrous way in me. Then lead me on the eternal path. And so we spent some time asking these questions. What am I anxious about? What are my false hopes and dreams that I need to lay aside? What are the next steps on the righteous path, the eternal path that Jesus has for us? And then it's not uh, explicit in the passage, but implicit. What are our wounds that we're carrying that we need to lay aside or need Jesus' healing in? And coming out of that day, and with the input of our discernment team, we sense God's invitation to engage the search process. And so I submitted, and I use that term intentionally, submitted my application to the board. Come, for everything is now ready. In this parable, this invitation is it's to a banquet. Really, we'd have, better have a picture of it if it was a, a, a party. And the reality is that God's invitation doesn't always lead immediately to a party. Sometimes it does. Remember Matthew, he was sitting at his tax collector booth when Jesus walked by and he said, Matthew, come follow me. And it doesn't say this part in the Bible, but I sort of imagine the conversation in my head as Matthew gets up from the tax collector booth and says, where are we going? And Jesus says, to your house, because you're going to throw a party. I want to meet your friends. And they do. But it doesn't always lead immediately to a party. Sometimes God's invitation involves following Jesus on paths that we would not have chosen for ourselves. Peter experienced this. Jesus told him he would. As Jesus gently restores Peter after Jesus' resurrection, he tells him in John chapter 21, verse 18, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Follow me. Follow me. But we can be assured that even on these paths that we do not want to walk, even in the darkest valleys and roughest roads, Jesus goes with us. 
He might not lead us to a party or a banquet immediately. But even on the roughest roads, he has prepared a table for us. Even in the presence of our enemies, he prepares a table for us to provide what we need to follow his path. And I can say with with full honesty and full conviction, even when the invitation has led through rough roads and tough trails, in the long run, I have never regretted accepting Jesus' invitation and call in my life. There are days when I question it, but in the long run, never regretted it. In the parable, though, there are those who originally invited reject the invitation Their excuses seem ridiculous at first glance. You have to go see a field you already bought? Won't it be there later? And isn't that kind of backwards? You have to test drive some oxen that you already purchased? Again, that seems kind of backwards. Wouldn't you want to test them beforehand? And plus, if you had the resources to buy five yoke of oxen, ten oxen, you probably have staff to test them for you. You just got married? Okay, I get wanting to spend time with your spouse, but you already accepted the first invitation to come. You have poor schedule management if you knew you would have a conflict with the banquet and your marriage. As I reflect on it, though, the ridiculousness of the excuses is convicting. How many times... Have I, have you, ignored Jesus' invitation to participate in the life of the kingdom because we were too busy, we were too distracted? And the point of this part of the parable is that Jesus' invitation should have priority over our worst and our best agendas. Even if the excuses are valid, even if the distractions are important, the invitation of Jesus should always take precedence. There are lots of good things that we can do. What is the best thing? What is best? So I dream of us being a church here at the Ephraim Church of Lethbridge with zero distractions to Jesus' invitation. A church that walks the tension of providing programs and opportunities to grow in your discipleship without clogging your calendar so full that you're just running from activity to activity. Filling the schedule with so much static that it drowns out the invitation of Jesus. Now programs and and events don't have to be in direct opposition to kingdom participation, but I want us as a church to resist the narrative that busyness is godliness. I want us to ensure that we have time to sit at the table and enjoy the feast and enjoy fellowship with one another and with the king. We'll need your participation in this. As we work to ensure that the church's activities don't become a distraction to discipleship, we need all of you to join with us to ensure that you aren't just filling your agendas with activity so that we have time for abiding with Jesus. John Mark Comer, Mark Knight, and Mark Sayers, it's interesting that they all have Mark in their name, write about being a non-anxious church and a non-anxious presence in our world. And I haven't finished all of their books yet or their podcasts, but what I'm picking up is that they say that we become a church with zero distractions to Jesus' invitation by making sure that we are a church centered on Jesus. 
In Matthew's version of this story, the banquet that, that the people are invited to is a royal wedding feast. It's the wedding of his son and the king is throwing a banquet to honor the son. The feast is centered on the son. Jesus is the center of the kingdom and therefore Jesus must be the center of our church. Why do we leave our oxen and come to the banquet? Because of Jesus. Why do we gather in large groups and small groups? Because of Jesus. Why do we have kids men and youth men and adult men and, and men's ministry and mom collective and gatherings? Because of Jesus. The banquet is centered on Jesus. The king responds to the rejection by expanding his invitation, verse 21. The servant came back and reported the rejection to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. As I look at this invitation, I think Jesus dreams of the Evangelical Free Church of Lethbridge of being a church where zero people are left out where zero people go without hearing Jesus' invitation. The king's heart is revealed in the invitation. He wants to share his joy and his riches and his abundance with his people. He wants to be in relationship with his people. He wants them to gather around the table with him, and he goes to great lengths to ensure that it happens. In the parable, he sends out his servants into the streets and the alleys, and when there's still room, he sends them out again to the surroundings countryside in history the king sends his son his son to, to live amongst us and to die for us and be raised to life defeating the power of death to purchase our entry into the kingdom so that we can come he goes to great lengths to make sure that no one is left out. He incurs all of the cost on himself. He does all the work. Do you notice the invitation? Come for everything is now ready. You don't have to bring a dessert or an appetizer to share or anything. You don't have to pay. He has done it all and it's ready for you. I don't have any illusions that we, the Evangelical Free Church of Lethbridge, are going to accomplish this on our own if we are going to make sure that zero people go without hearing Jesus' invitation, we will need to partner with and trust other churches and ministries to join us in this mission. But it's important because it's clearly the king's heart. It's clearly the king's heart that zero people go without hearing Jesus' invitation, that zero people would perish, that zero people would have to face his eternal judgment, but that all would repent, that they change their hearts and their lives and participate in the feast. They participate in the party of the kingdom. Zero people go without hearing the invitation. Zero people are left out of participating in the party. Notice who's included in, the, in this party. People from town and from the country. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. In, in Matthew's version, it's anyone that the servants could find. Anybody that they kind of came into contact with. They were invited in. And it specifically says that the invitation was extended and included the good and the bad. Tom Wright puts it this way. At this banquet, there will be people with every kind of moral and immoral background People quite different from you culturally, socially, ethnically, and ethically. 
You see, the progression of the kingdom mindset is this, that, that those that we would consider our enemies become our neighbors. And those that are our neighbors become our friends. And those who are our friends become our family, sons and daughters around the table. I follow Lori Hattin on Instagram. She calls herself someone who does Pomish lettering. And she writes this, and I love that. I have it up in my office, actually. Prisoners pen scripture. Whores are heroes. And every face resembles holiness. The feet of peasants are washed by the king. And law bows down to love. Outsiders are insiders. And the door is not open, but torn clean from its hinges. This is the house God built. If this is God's vision for his kingdom, then it should be reflected in our church. And if it's going to be reflected in our church, it must be reflected in our circle of friendships and fellowships. We should be constantly aware of who's missing, who's being left out, who's being pushed to the margins, whose voice is being silenced, who's standing alone in our lobby or sitting by themselves in our services and inviting them in to the fellowship even inconveniencing ourselves to make space. Zero people left out. Zero people unknown. Not everybody knows everybody, but everybody is known by somebody. Further, I think Jesus' dream for our church is that we would be a place where there is zero shame for our wounds and zero pretending or pretension. Notice that the king specifically names the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame in his invitation. I kind of get the idea that if you weren't crippled, poor, blind, or lame, you couldn't get into the party at that point. And the reality is that we are all wounded. One of the questions that the board asked me in the, in the interview was, coming out of my experiences in the last three to five years, was I healed? And my answer was, I'm healing. I'm in the process. But I think I will always carry these wounds to some extent. Maybe as a scar, as Pastor Tim talked about on January 1st, but it will always be there. And to pretend it's not is to set myself up for failure and to set you up for failure. See, when we deny our poverty, we discourage community. Can you imagine being at this banquet and there's someone who's crippled attending the party, but they're pretending they're not crippled. Like we saw you get carried in. Who are you trying to fool, right? To keep up the charade, you would have to keep people at a distance. You'd ha you have to make sure that people didn't really know you. And it would prevent community because community is about being known and knowing others. And I'm not saying that we should check for each other's woundedness at the door before we come in. And I'm not saying that you have to come up front and bleed over everyone. But does someone know? Is there at least someone, maybe even a small group of people, who really know you and they know your wounds? See, not only does denying our poverty discourage community, hiding our hurts hinder healing. I remember reading a book about small group ministry and it started by telling a story about a small group of men who had been journeying together for years and they went out together at a restaurant and one of the men in the small group announced to them that he and his wife were getting a divorce. They hadn't seen it coming at all. 
He hadn't told them that they were having any troubles in their marriage. It was, it was too late. It was done. That was the announcement. Why? Why did he wait so long? Because he was ashamed of his wounds. And he was afraid of people's reactions. If we're going to continue to be a culture, a church, where there is zero shame for our wounds and zero pretending that we're not wounded, we need to communicate through our words and through our actions that we will care for the wounded. Paul Brandt in his book, Paul Brand, sorry, in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, recalls a lecture that Margaret Mead gave. She's a cultural anthropologist. And in this lecture, she was asked what the earliest sign of civilization was. And she said, it's not the discovery of clay pots or iron or tools or agriculture, but the earliest sign of civilization is a healed femur. And she explained that, that such healing was never found in artifacts of competitive savage societies. The healed femur showed that someone had to have cared for that injured person because they could not care for their own. Someone hunted on their behalf, prepared food for them, served them at personal sacrifice, waited for them to heal before they moved on. Savage societies could not afford such pity. I don't want people to be afraid of revealing their wounds because they worry that we will shoot them or leave them in the dust. I want our church to be known for healed femurs because we're not in competition with one another and we don't have to hide for one another. I want our church to be known as a place, continue to be known as a place of healing because people are confident that they'll be cared for, that they'll be waited for. I see this already. I see it through our programs like Conquer and through our visitation teams and our meal trains and the, so many stories of people who have been surrounded by love and care in our church. Let's keep growing in this. Let's keep becoming a church where the wounded aren't afraid, but they're cared for. This means that we will be a church that is centered on Jesus and focused on people. I've never attended an ancient banquet. I'm not that old. But from my reading, I get the impression that while there were strict social conventions regarding seating arrangements, and we see that in the context of this parable, that these ancient banquets were much more of a party than what we envision when we think of a banquet. When do we go to banquets today? It's usually weddings and fundraisers. And they usually have a pretty packed program, lots of speeches and agenda, all those things. My sense of the ancient banquet was that the party was primary and the program was secondary. If our church is going to be a reflection of the kingdom, then we will be centered on Jesus and focused on people. We will put people before performance and programs. We'll build up people instead of building platforms and followings. We'll prioritize people over politics and procedures and policies and productivity. When we are centered on Jesus and focused on people, we will not use people as resources to run our programs, but we will recognize our responsibility for their discipleship and their care, including our leaders within our ministries. When we're centered on Jesus and focused on people, we will not value people for what they can do for our programs or contribute to our church, but for who they are in Christ. 
when we're centered on Jesus and focused on people, we will be more focused on individuals than on numbers, engagement rather than attendance, and community rather than building audiences. We will ensure that our programs and our events reflect this priority. We'll ensure that our structures, our buildings, and our staff structures and leadership structures reflect this priority. Chris Brogan puts it this way, the difference between an audience and a community is which way the chairs are facing. We will be a church of zero distractions, zero people left out or left behind, a church where there is zero shame and zero pretending. And finally, we need to be a church where there are zero people unengaged. It's interesting to me that Jesus tells this story about this banquet and immediately follows it up with teaching about the cost of being a disciple. In fact, he says, whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It seems like an oxymoron to me. It seems like a, a paradox. Come to a free banquet that will cost you absolutely everything. And Jesus told this story in response to someone saying to him, blessed is the one who will eat the feast in the kingdom of God, indicating that those who are initially invited or feel entitled to be at the feast may not actually be the ones who are let in. But this conversation and this story happens within the context of a dinner party that Jesus has been invited to. And he's sitting there observing that people are pushing for places of prestige at the table. So he tells them, when you're invited to a party, don't presume to take a position of honor, but take a low position. Be humble. And when you're inviting people to a party, don't invite people who will give you prestige, but invite people who cannot pay you back. So in the context, Jesus is reminding us that we are both the surprising guests at the feast, the ones who did not deserve to enter in, weren't entitled to it at all, and we are also the servants who extend the invitation. He tells the story as an indication of who will participate in the feast and an indication of who those who are already participating should be inviting to participate as well. And the reality is that we aren't going to get to zero if it all depends on the lead pastor. We're not going to get to zero if it all depends on the staff or the leadership. We're not going to get to zero if we rely solely on programs and events. We can only get close to zero if there are zero people unengaged, if there are zero spectators. As I was preparing for this Sunday, I noticed probably for the first time, at least it struck me, that this parable is unfinished. It ends with the servant's observation. There's still room. And then the king's instruction, go back out there, fill the place up. And we assume that it does get filled. But it doesn't say that. This vision that I presented to you this morning doesn't re represent a massive change for us as a church. Every week, I get a glimpse into the party that is the kingdom that happens in our lobby after our services. People are in relationship. People are celebrating. People are, are in fellowship with one another. And your party lasts for sometimes over an hour after the service is done. Almost every day, I get to see how our church is a place for healing. How I hear about someone who is wounded and is cared for, someone who's lonely and is loved, someone who is hurting and is supported and waited for until they are healed. I regularly hear about people who are, have been invited into community and embraced 
into our community. But like the parable, our story is also unfinished. There's still room. There's still room for improvement, and there's still room for more to join our feast and our family. We haven't reached zero yet, but we can get closer by God's grace and with our obedient engagement in the life of the kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.